0: Welcome to the SHIFT Gold Friday Gold Wrap, your overview of news impacting the precious metals markets. It's Friday, July 21st. I'm your host, Mike Meharry. Thanks for tuning in. I have great news for you today. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says there isn't going to be a recession. Whew, that's a relief. She made this prediction during a Bloomberg interview earlier this week. She said, quote, growth has slowed, but our labor market continues to be quite strong. I don't expect a recession. I think we're on a good path to bring inflation down. So there you go. The Fed is going to thread the needle. It's going to slay price inflation and bring the economy to a soft landing. And we're all going to live happily ever after you know, on second thought, maybe Galen projecting no recession isn't such a good thing. I mean, after all, this is the same woman who, not too long ago, swore that inflation was transitory. And as I talked about in a recent show, the Fed has an absolutely abysmal track record when it comes to predicting things. And of course, Janet Yellen is now Treasury Secretary, but she is a former chairperson of the Federal Reserve. So I'm going to assume that her projecting abilities probably are on par with Jerome Powell and Bernanke and the rest of the Fed governors. You know, get this, according to fund manager David Hay, the Fed has only gotten interest rate projections right 37% of the time. And as he pointed out, they actually control interest rates. They control the rates. And yet, if you look at their projections, their dot plots of where interest rates are going to go, 37% of the time, those are right. That's why I've said before, the Fed probably would do well to invest in a dartboard that would probably provide more accurate projections and uh, economic prognostication. So, The fact that Yellen is so sure that there isn't going to be a recession eh, might be a little worrisome. Probably means there is going to be a recession. So you know what else is worrisome? The fissures that I'm seeing out there in the economy. Now I've been saying for a while now that something else is going to break with interest rates this high. Somebody pointed out to me that you know, 5% interest rates aren't really that high. And that's true from a historical standpoint. 5% isn't that high. Um, but they're high relative to what the economy is kind of geared up to run on, right? Because over the last decade plus, we had 0% interest rate. So, 5 relatively speaking, is high. Although, you know, we're not talking Volcker-era high when we were seeing interest rates over 20%. Anyway, the point I'm driving at is that interest rates are certainly high for this kind of over-leveraged bubble economy. And this over-leveraged bubble economy can't handle it. Uh, and that's why I say that something else is going to break in the economy or the financial system. And I say something else because we already have a banking crisis, which is actually still simmering under the surface. And that banking crisis was, of course, precipitated by these higher interest rates. Uh, We're going to get into the banking crisis here in a few. Um, But the question is, when is something else going to break? I know that's, you know, everybody wants to know when. And I have no idea. As the saying goes, things happen slowly and then all at once. Right now, things are happening slowly, very slowly, so slowly, in fact, that you might not even notice these things if you're not paying close attention. And of course, that's why you listen to me, right? I'm paying close attention. But yeah, there are some fissures out there, cracks in the dam, if you will. Now, will these be the fissures that split wide open and create the next major crisis? I don't know. I mean the thing that breaks may be something completely different from the things I'm going to talk about today, something that's not even on our radar. Um, you know, the Black Swan kind of event. But the things that I'm going to talk about today, three things primarily, are worth paying attention to. Before I get into that, I want to touch on the price action of gold this week. The yellow metal actually hit a two month high on Thursday morning. Uh, it was trading around 1980 an ounce and uh, dollar weakness has been the big driver for gold uh, really over the last week and a half, two weeks. Uh, The dollar index was below 100 earlier in the week, and the dollar is being weighed down by the eager anticipation that July is going to be the last Fed rate hike. So, you know, everybody's pretty much convinced that the Fed is done. Uh, they either think inflation is beat or it's beat enough uh, so that the Fed can stop uh uh, raising rates, so of course, then that would mean you know the next move is a pause. Now, of course, the Fed is going to say they're going to hold rates at this level for years. <laughs> but again, we've talked about the projections of the Fed, so I wouldn't I wouldn't bank on that. But um, that's kind of kind of where the market is. There's there's a lot of sanguine bullish attitude out there because. I think there is this underlying anticipation that the easy money is coming back. I don't think most of the markets really believe, like Yellen said, that there's going to be no recession, but they do think it's going to be short and they think it's going to be shallow, and you know that'll mean a return to uh, easier money. And easy money is the mother's milk of this economy. Peter Schiff did a podcast this week talking about the dollar and the trajectory of the dollar, and he's arguing that with this dollar weakness – that we're seeing, and we will continue to see, as uh, the rate hiking has ended. Uh, he makes a good argument that this is actually going to exacerbate price inflation, and I think as you uh, as we go down the road here, I think we are going to see that you know price inflation isn't beat. We're not back to two percent, uh, but you know we're close enough now to to create this optimism. I'll link to that uh, podcast in the show notes page if you want to check that out. So anyway, we had gold around 1980, and at that level, there is uh, quite a bit of technical resistance, uh, and and we had a little bit of a sell-off. We're we're down this morning uh, in the 1960s uh, as I was getting ready to do the podcast. Uh, So, you know, I said this last week, I don't think you're going to see any huge breakout or breakdown in the price of gold um, here in the next little bit, unless... We get some kind of big breakage or big news in the economy. So, let's talk a little bit about some of the fissures that are out there in the economy, some of the cracks in the dam, and why maybe we shouldn't be quite as optimistic as a lot of people out there in the mainstream seem to be about the trajectory of the economy. And first off, despite what Janet Yellen and other apologists for the Jerome Powell, Joe Biden economy keeps saying about the labor market, there are a lot of other signals out there that the economy generally isn't doing great. Uh, You look at some of the housing numbers and stuff in the real estate market. You can look at some of the manufacturing numbers, these regional manufacturing numbers. numbers that come from the Fed are showing a lot of weakness in manufacturing. I think the Philly numbers came out yesterday, lower than expected, showing a contraction in manufacturing. So people aren't making as much stuff. Um, So there is data out there that undermines Yellen's assertion that there's not going to be a recession. But the focus always seems to go back to jobs. It's jobs, jobs, jobs. And You know, we've talked before on the show about how these jobs numbers are a little bit sketchy. I'm not necessarily sure that we should put a lot of stock in what the Bureau of Labor Statistics is reporting. And they are already starting to revise some of these numbers down. You know, so you get these initial big, you know, we got all these jobs and then quietly in, in the background, they revise the numbers down later. And even if you do believe the numbers, you know, we've talked also before about how so many of these jobs are second, third, part-time jobs, people taking on extra work, trying to make ends meet in this uh, price-increasing economy. And so, you know, it's not just about the labor market. And the fact of the matter is, the labor market is actually a trailing indicator, all right? It will start to contract after the recession gets going, right? People don't lay off workers and cause a recession. People start laying off workers because they recognize that business is contracting. So I you know don't wanna completely discount the labor market. It is certainly stronger than you would expect. But again, I think there are reasons that we can kind of look to to help explain that. And you can't look totally at jobs and think that's the total picture of the economy. So the data release that really grabbed my attention this week was the conference board's leading economic indicators. They dropped by 0.7% to 106.1%. It was a bigger Drop than expected. And more significantly, it was the 15th consecutive negative month for those leading economic indicators. The last negative streak that was this long occurred back in uh, 2007 2008 during the run up to the financial crisis and the Great Recession. The conference Board statement said, quote, taken together, June's data suggests economic activity will continue to decelerate in the months ahead. And it reiterated its forecast that the U.S. economy is likely to be in recession from the current third quarter to at least the first quarter of 2024. So, sorry, Ms. Janet. What's worse is that the economic indicators would have dropped even further if it wasn't for the rising stock market. So all of this time, stocks have actually buoyed the economic indicators. Uh, The stock market is one of the factors, and when the stock market is going up, that is considered a positive economic indicator. So that is actually propping up this number. And of course the only reason the stock market is rising is because the markets think the inflation fight is about over and the Fed is going to cut rates uh, ostensibly to stimulate a sagging economy. So, you know, the stock market is uh, <clears throat> buying on on bad news. Anyway, the point I'm driving at here is that no matter what Janet Yellen is saying, the leading economic indicators are telling you that a recession is looming. And so you can decide for yourself whether you want to believe Grandma Yellen or if you want to believe uh, this data. So, here's another story that I ran across this week that I think if you took it in isolation, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. But given the context, given what we know about the commercial real estate market, I think this should definitely raise some eyebrows. Barry Sternlich's Starwood Capital Group is now in default on a $212.5 million mortgage backed by an Atlanta office tower. As Fortune reported, this is, quote, another sign of mounting distress in U.S. commercial real estate. Now, you may recall that back in March, I did a whole segment on this very show about how the commercial real estate market could be the next big thing to break in the economy. It's a mess, and it's getting to be a bigger mess as interest rates are rising. And of course, it's kind of facing a double whammy. There's lower occupancy in commercial real estate because more people are working at home. We have the after effects of the pandemic, and then on top of that, you've got these higher interest rates. Uh, the mortgage on this particular building matured on July 9th, and Starwood failed to refinance or pay off that debt. According to a filing, quote, borrower confirmed they are unable to pay off the loan at maturity. So this is what happens when you have depreciating property values in a high interest rate environment, right? Right. The bank is looking at this building and saying, I don't know if it's really worth that much of a loan. And then on the flip side of it, you've got uh, these, these uh, commercial real estate investors that had sweetheart mortgages that are now faced with refinancing at much higher interest rates. So, you know, this is a, this is a problem waiting to happen, right? As reported by Yahoo Finance back in March, quote, big owners of property around the country are already under pressure from the Federal Reserve's aggressive campaign to raise interest rates, which raised borrowing costs and lowered building values. So, you know, this big default that we're talking about here uh, on this Atlanta office building is just the tip of the iceberg. And, you know, it might be the canary in the proverbial coal mine. According to TREP, $448 billion in commercial real estate loans will mature this year, in 2023. Banks hold $227 billion of those loans. Uh, If you go out even farther over the next five years, $2.56 trillion in commercial real estate loans will mature, with $1.4 trillion of that held by banks. According to Yahoo Finance, small and mid-sized banks hold most commercial real estate mortgages. You can see where we're going here, right? You can see the problem. we have got this, this uh, kind of shakiness in the commercial real estate market, which, if it starts to crumble, is going to spill over into the banking industry, which is already under stress. According to a report by Goldman Sachs, Uh, Goldman Sachs economists, banks with less than $250 billion in assets hold more than 80% of CRE loans. So, these are the banks that are already under the most pressure due to this still-simmering financial crisis. And yes, the financial crisis is still simmering. And that leads me to the third news item that I ran across that made me go, hmm... So, as of the end of the first quarter, Bank of America had over $100 billion in unrealized losses on its bond portfolio. And, of course, this is the exact same problem that torpedoed Silicon Valley Bank. So, Uh, a little revisit of history, you'll recall that SVB had to sell a large portion of its bond portfolio. Uh, It took a $1.8 billion loss when it sold those bonds. Uh, The CEO of the bank said that uh, they made the sale because, quote, we expect continued higher interest rates, pressured public and private markets, and elevated cash burn levels from our clients. So, you know, uh the CEO's looking at the dynamics in the bank. He's saying, hey, we need to raise cash. Um, so maybe we should sell these bonds. The bank bought bonds these bonds when interest rates were very, very low. As a result, the $21 billion available for sale bond portfolio was not yielding above cash burn. Uh, So, low yields. They're not getting much of a return off of these bonds. The bonds have high value. They paid a lot of money for them because you always have to remember that when you're talking about bonds, the yield or the interest rate is Inverse to the price of the bond. So the more expensive the bond is, the lower the yield, and vice versa. As interest rates increase, the value of the bond decreases. So the uh, bank, the plan was to sell these longer term, lower interest rate bonds and then reinvest the money into shorter duration bonds with a higher yield. Uh, It didn't work, and the sale ended up. Severely denting the bank's balance sheet, and that caused worried depositors to pull funds out of the bank. So I repeat that history just to kind of give you an insight into why higher interest rates are putting so much pressure on these banks, uh, and it has to do with the fact that they invested in these bonds. Now, you know, you, you'll hear some people out there, well, that just shows how stupid these bankers are, and how could they have done this? Well, they were incentivized to do this, right? This is the whole point. All of this monetary policy is on purpose. And then you get the, the flip side of it, and people want to get mad and point fingers in, in other directions. So Silicon Valley Bank actually ended up you know, crashing. Uh, depositors pulled funds out of the bank when they saw what was going on, and, uh, and it was a huge mess, right? It was the beginning of what we call the financial crisis. Or at least a banking crisis. Now, I will grant you that Bank of America does not face the same cash crunch that SVB did. So I'm not saying that, oh my gosh, Bank of America is going to collapse because of this, just like SVB. No, completely different. Uh, Bank of America is like the second largest bank in the country. Uh, It's one of the two big to fail banks. Um, It has no plans to liquidate these depreciated bond portfolios. So it's just a paper loss. Um, It's not a situation that threatens the solvency of BOA. But it does exemplify the problems in the financial system that continue to gurgle under the surface, because Bank of America obviously isn't alone in having all of these unrealized losses. So it's another fissure in the financial system, if you will. So, while bond portfolio depreciation almost certainly won't sink BOA like it did Silicon Valley Bank, it could create problems for Bank of America. According to the Financial Times, quote, holding on to the relatively low-yielding investments, many of which are backed by 30-year home loans at a time when newly purchased bonds yield significantly more, could limit the income that BOA can generate from its customer deposits. So, yeah, they can hold on to these bonds until they mature, they're not going to actually take a real loss, but it is creating problems for their business model, is basically what this is saying. Now, Bank of America um, isn't alone. Uh, By the way, one analyst that I read called BOA's balance sheet, quote, a mess. Um, but again, not alone. Most banks dumped a lot of cash into the bond market when weight rates were low and bond prices were high. It looked like a good investment, right? They were incentivized to do it. But uh, Bank of America pursued the policy with gusto, and it now faces the biggest paper losses in the industry. But other banks are also facing the same problem to a lesser degree. Uh, J.P. Morgan, Chase and Wells Fargo uh, have charted about $40 billion in unrealized losses. So, according to FDIC data that was reported by the Financial Times, Bank of America's losses account for about a fifth of the $515 billion in total unrealized losses among the nation's nearly 4,600 banks. Uh, and this is as of the end of the first quarter. The uh, Financial Times actually did a pretty good job of explaining just how banks got into this situation. Quote, Years of low interest rates, increased regulation, and tepid economic growth prompted banks of all sizes to put more deposits into bonds and other securities or boost lending by pursuing less creditworthy borrowers. Now, think about what they just said there. Low interest rates, increased regulation, and tepid economic growth prompted banks. By prompted, they mean incentivized, right? Why do we have years of low interest rates? The Federal Reserve. Why do we have increased regulation? Government. Why do we have tepid economic growth? Both. (laughs) So, this was incentivized. You can't point your fingers and go, ooh, greedy banks, When you've got the government and the Fed incentivizing this behavior. Anyway, going on from the uh, Financial Times article, from the end of 2019 to mid-2022, the total value of securities, mostly treasuries and insured mortgage bonds, so mortgage-backed securities, at all banks rose by 54%, or $2 trillion, and about twice as fast as their overall assets. This is, again, according to FDIC data. And I can't emphasize this enough. Why were interest rates so low for so long? Answer, because the Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world held them artificially low to stimulate the economy. So the same thing that is putting the squeeze on the commercial real estate market is also putting the squeeze on the banks. And it all goes back to the Fed. You know, they like to run around, Jerome Powell and and other Fed people, they like to run around and act like, oh, inflation, it's just a mystery, it just appeared. Oh, uh, we have these problems in the banking system, they just appeared. Like, these people seriously need to look in the mirror, because they are the root cause of all of this stuff. Anyway, the rampant money creation and the 0% interest rates during the COVID pandemic On top of three rounds of quantitative easing and more than a decade of artificially low interest rates in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, it's created all kinds of distortions and malinvestments in the economy and the financial system. And what we're talking about today, these are just two of them. There are all kinds of industries and markets that are distorted and out of whack because of what the Fed has done. And again... I keep saying this over and over, something's going to break. It might be something else in the banking system. It might be commercial real estate. It might be something else. But it is inevitable. And it became inevitable the moment the Fed started trying to raise interest rates in order to fight price inflation. Because, as I've said over and over again, this economy is built to run on easy money so you take the easy money away Uh, you know it's like taking oil out of an engine Uh, it creates problems it makes things break so here we are so anyway back to Bank of America I got a little bit off of track Um, you know As we've kind of already alluded to, paper losses don't really matter that much in practice. I mean, think about it. If you have a stock and that stock loses 50%, uh, you've got a huge paper loss. You can look at that and you go, oh my gosh, I've lost all this money. But you haven't really lost any money until you actually sell that stock. For a lower price than you bought it. If you hold onto the stock and it goes back up, everything's fine. So, paper losses, uh, they do reveal things, but in practice, eh, not that big of a deal. But of course, uh, in this situation with these banks, it will become a problem if they become strapped for cash and they need to liquidate assets in order to raise capital. Um, And, you know, for Bank of America, probably not gonna be a problem because it's such a big bank. But smaller banks, it could become a problem, just like it did for uh, Silicon Valley Bank. And there are a lot of banks that are kind of balanced on this precipice right now. As of March, the banking sector was buried under about $620 billion in unrealized losses. Um, So that means that SVB, Signature Bank, the uh, First Republic Bank, these failures were just the tip of the iceberg. In fact, uh, some data uh, or a study that was cited by the Wall Street Journal, uh, which came from Stanford and Columbia Universities, found that 186 U.S. banks were in distress as of last spring, and that number, honestly, has probably grown. Based on the number of banks that are issuing their own bonds to raise capital, it certainly appears that many American banks are facing some kind of money crunch. Uh, You know, they're basically taking out high interest rate loans right now to raise cash. And uh, from what I read, the yields on these bank bonds are about one percentage point higher than the 10-year U.S. Treasury. So this doesn't exactly scream, hey, the banking sector is in great shape. Now, does it? So for the time being the uh, market is absorbing the bond issuance uh, by these banks they're they're buying these bonds but what happens if the bond market keeps tanking you know keep in mind the US treasury is also flooding the market with bonds um, and speaking of federal borrowing, the fiscal 2023 budget deficit is already bigger than the 2022 budget deficit shortfall was. And we still got three months to go in fiscal 2023. Uh, you know, I, I can't help but remember a few months ago, we had Joe Biden running around bragging about how, oh, I brought down deficits, you know, because they're not as big as they were during COVID. Yeah, you not brought them down so much, Uncle Joe. Um You know, the national debt is another fissure in the economy, another uh, weak point that I'm not going to even get into today. Uh, I've talked about it before. I'll link to an article uh, about the most recent budget deficit data uh, on the show notes page if you're interested in perusing that. Anyway, with all of these bonds being sold, both uh, bank bonds and U.S. Treasuries, other corporate bonds, we're definitely seeing the upward pressure on interest rates. Uh, remember, it's all a function of supply and demand. So, if you have more bonds out there, uh, a bigger supply, that's going to have a uh, an effect on the price of pushing it down. And as bond prices drop, yields rise. So, we're seeing this upward pressure on interest interest uh, interest rates. And of course, that means uh, banks are increasing their interest expense. So, any unforeseen event could tip these banks into crisis mode, say a big meltdown in the commercial real estate market. Um, If they are forced to sell the devalued bonds to raise cash, it could send them over the edge just like it did Silicon Valley Bank. Again, probably not going to happen to Bank of America, but it could easily happen to small and medium sized banks, especially if they start taking big losses again on commercial real estate. So, you know, to this point, the Fed has managed to paper over the financial crisis uh, and the government as well with the bank bailout. And, uh, you know, they created this bank term funding program, the BTFP, which offers loans of up to one year in length to banks, savings associations, credit unions and other eligible depository institutions um, and they can pledge US Treasury's agency debt and mortgage-backed security as collateral um, banks can borrow against these assets at par so at face value which you know is a stinking sweet deal I mean where can I get a loan for a lot more than my collateral is worth nowhere uh, but the banks can do that through through this BTFP so as of July 12th, the BTFP had over $100 billion in loans outstanding. In other words, banks are still tapping into this bailout program, and that tells me the financial crisis is still simmering, and you know, who knows when the next domino is going to fall. Of course, banks may be able to weather this storm thanks to the bailout, but you know it's just a matter of time before these high interest rates break something else in the financial system or the economy. Again, I, I say this over and over again, the U.S. economy is programmed to run on easy money. Uh, what kind of damage the Fed has caused by taking the easy money away remains to be seen. Uh, how bad the withdrawals the attic is going to go through, don't know yet. So, all of this to say that uh, Grandma Yellen's optimism, notwithstanding, things are looking a little shaky out there. As Jim Grant put it in a recent interview, rivets are popping off stage. And, you know, I love Jim Grant. I mentioned this last week. And uh, he asked an important question in this interview. It was on CNBC. I'll link to it in the show notes page. Um, but a question that we should all ponder. He asked, will the consequences of these rate hikes now playing out and these examples of stringency, will the consequences overwhelm the Fed's attempt to get price inflation under control while bringing the economy to a soft landing? And uh, Grant came up with a really good analogy during this interview. You remember when Captain Chelsea Sullenberger was forced to land uh, an, a, a U.S. Airways airliner on the Hudson River? Uh, They had an in-flight emergency, and he was able to successfully land on the river. Well, that's basically what the Fed is trying to do. Grant said, quote, It requires a great deal of precision and not a little luck to do what they say they will do, which is to deliver us from the consequences of 10 years of artificially low rates. Now, is this a repeat of 2008 when things looked fine for a while. You remember, you know, 2006, 2007, there was some shakiness in the in the mortgage market. And everybody said, no, it's fine. It's contained to subprime. And the Fed cut rates a little bit. And then at the end of 2008, you know, everything went to crap. So, are we going to see a repeat of that? You know, things look fine for a while. Uh, everybody swore the problems were contained. Or is Jerome Powell really Captain Sullenberger? He's a nice guy, Jay Powell, but I think he's not Sully, Grant said. I agree with Jim. Jay Powell is not Sully. So, you know, every week I say you should start preparing now for what's coming down the pike. Remember, what is inevitable is certain, but not always punctual. So, you may have some time before the crisis becomes obvious. You may have a year before the crisis becomes obvious, or maybe not. Anyway, I recommend that if you're thinking about looking at gold and silver as part of your investment strategy, if you want to add it to your portfolio, if you're thinking about increasing your exposure, talk to a shift gold precious metal specialist today. You can call 1-888-GOLD-160 or you can just email them at info at Uh, You can also go to shiftgold.com, go to the Getting Started tab, and you can talk to a precious metals specialist right there and chat online if you don't like talking on the phone. But anyway, do it today. These guys are fantastic, and they're going to look at your individual situation and and help you figure out how gold and silver can fit into your investment strategy. So, do that today. And with that, we're going to call it a gold wrap for this week. And of course... You know, you can get more details on all of the stories and more. Keep up with the latest Precious Metals news and analysis throughout the week over at shiftgold.com slash news. And if you haven't done it already, you can subscribe to the Friday Gold Wrap. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Google Podcasts. We're on the Ship Gold YouTube channel. You'll find links to all of those things on the show notes page along with our social media channels. Uh, you can email me, mmeherry, at shipgold.com. Love hearing from folks. And, uh, yeah, I hope you guys have a great weekend and I will talk to y'all next week.